Welcome to World Policy on Air, the weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posted May 5, 2017, we talk with Central Asia expert Sarah Kenzior about tampering with truth in Uzbekistan and the warning it sounds for Americans in the age of Trump and alternative facts. Her article in the new WPJ Spring issue is headlined, From Andijan to Bowling Green, Fabricated Terrorism in Uzbekistan and the United States. We'll also point out other top features in the new WPJ Spring 2017 issue, cover line, Fascism Rising. But first, this week's Winners and Losers report from Ian Bremer, president of Eurasia Group Global Risk Consultants. It's Ian Bremer. I'm here in Santiago, and I've got your winners and losers, the Kim Jong-un, Donald Trump edition. Donald Trump, winner. He's driving the agenda. No one's paid attention for decades. He likes that. Kim Jong-un, winner. He's in all the headlines. He keeps launching off missiles. No one's hit him yet. Loves that stuff. Uh, South Korea's next president, loser. This is a massive geopolitical risk for them, and they're trying to ignore it. Kim uh, Xi Jinping, clearly a winner for now. Mar-a-Lago consensus. They're cooperating with the U.S., Probably doesn't last for long, though. And how about America first? Well, it sure as hell isn't South Korea or Japan first. Winner. You're listening to World Policy on Air. Now this. I bet it's brand new information to people that President Obama had a six-month ban on the Iraqi refugee program after two Iraqis came here to this country, mm-hmm. were radicalized, and they were the master, masterminds behind the Bowling Green Massacre. Most people don't know that because it didn't get covered. Of course, the press didn't cover what Trump White House counselor Kellyanne Conway told MSNBC's Chris Matthews was the Bowling Green Massacre because there was none. The kindest explanation was that Conway, defending President Trump's court-blocked Muslim ban, was confused about a 2011 federal sting operation that netted two Iraqis with past extremist ties that were overlooked when they were first admitted to the U.S., but who never committed actual terrorism here. A far more menacing explanation is that Conway, who earlier coined the phrase alternative facts to explain Trump administration departures from the truth, was part of a purposeful campaign to demonize Muslims, raise doubts about all news media coverage, and advance state power to define reality, as often seen in authoritarian regimes. So writes Central Asia scholar Sarah Kenzior in the new spring issue of World Policy Journal, presenting a case history from the former Soviet satellite Uzbekistan. Her article is headlined, From Andijan to Bowling Green, Fabricated Terrorism in Uzbekistan and the United States and we discussed it recently for this podcast. Sarah Kenzier, welcome to World Policy on Air. Oh, thank you for having me. Beyond Bowling Green, what do you see as the most egregious examples of alternative facts or outright lying in the Trump campaign and administration so far? I mean, there's so many examples that, you know, I could be here all day, but To name a few highlights, um, there is his claim that Obama had unilaterally uh, authorized a wiretap of Trump Tower, um, you know, which is both impossible uh, and untrue. There is his claim about the voting, um, that there's illegal voters in California, which is, you know, again, a pretext, I think, to use in the future to try to delegitimize um, that population of voters and, you know, possibly to enact voter suppression, um, you know, which is also already a problem. 
Um, he's still claiming that Muslims celebrated 9-11. Uh, that's an old claim that he repeated uh, recently in an interview in March. Uh, people in his administration have made some pretty audacious claims. Uh, I think the most notorious recently is Sean Spicer talking about Holocaust centers uh, and that you know Hitler did not gas the Jews, um, you know, which he, he tried to walk back in kind of a similar way that Conway did uh, without a lot of success. Um, you know, he's also you know, lied about some more minor things like the size of his inauguration, which of course, uh, you know, uh, Spicer lied about the crowd size as well. Uh, he lied that his children would not be working in the White House, and they both now have high security clearances as well as positions. Um, so, you know, we, we, we can go on and on, but, you know, obviously there's a pattern here, and the pattern is pathological lying for political ends. What about the false announcement that a U.S. armada was heading to Korea when, in fact, it was steaming away? Uh, it seems to have backfired, if, if indeed it was uh, not an error, but uh, part of his boastful bravado. Yeah, that's a very troubling thing. Um, the rhetoric on North Korea from this administration is very troubling, in part because it's inconsistent. Um, you know, we hear from some, like Tillerson, that diplomacy has failed. You know, we hear from others that uh, diplomacy is still on the table. We've heard rumors that we're going to launch a preemptive strike. Uh, there's definitely a lack of understanding of North Korea as a country. Um, you know, certain things they do that, well, obviously are bad, um, you know, like testing missiles or showing videos of, uh, you know, the United States being destroyed by North Korea are pretty routine things. Um, they do this every year, but Trump seems to take it as a personal front and seems really, uh, you know, gunned up for uh, launching a preemptive strike, as they call it, on North Korea. You know, and as for the, uh, the mysterious armada, um, you know, it, it's very concerning that we can't tell if the president is lying as part of, um, you know, bluster and propaganda to justify war, or if he generally, you know, genuinely doesn't know um, where, you know, military equipment or ships are located, uh, which is something you, you would kind of hope your commander-in-chief would know. So, How do you see false assertions actually translating into policy beyond uh, court-blocked uh, bans on international visitors, immigrants, and refugees? Talk about the renaming of a key anti-terrorism program and its impact. Yeah, I mean, they've recently renamed, um, you know, their program that monitors, uh, you know, extremists and terrorists as focusing solely on Muslims. Um, I can't remember the exact name, but, you know, it's like a center for exam examining Islamic extremism. And, you know, this accomplishes two things. One is it continues uh, the Islamophobic nature of the administration, which, you know, uh, through both the Muslim ban in terms of practice and through rhetoric, like Muslims cheer 9-11, Muslims are terrorists, has put out, um, you know, a really terrible um, and false view of Muslims, um, you know, that lumps together, you know, a billion people, um, you know, into a caricature that's backed up really by very few people and almost never by uh, Muslim refugees in the United States. And at the same time, it diverts attention away from the white nationalists and white supremacists, many of whom have actually tried to carry out terror attacks, um, you know, inspired by Trump. Right before the election, uh, three guys in Kansas City tried to blow up up, um, an apartment complex of Somali Muslim refugees because they were inspired by Trump to do so. And, you know, thankfully they were caught by the FBI, but those sorts of terror attacks or terror attacks attempts, um, you know, are, are more common. There's been a huge growth 
in militant groups and, you know, white patriot groups, white extremist groups, um, you know, that, that's a huge problem. And it's a problem that Trump is extremely unwilling to deal with because those groups comprise part of his base. Um, and instead he's shifting the focus onto, um, you know, Muslim religious uh, organizations, you know, which comparatively play a smaller role uh, in, you know, what kind of problems we do experience, that, you know, with terrorists on U.S. soil. And from which we need cooperation if we're really going to put intelligence uh, uh, feelers into those communities. Yeah, and I, I certainly wouldn't trust this administration with anything, whether you know, you're Muslim or not. Um, I don't think they're acting in good faith, and I certainly think that they are biased, um, and they seem to be uh, very interested in persecuting people for being Muslim and for nothing else. You know, we've seen that in the situation at the airports where Muslims are just, you know, denied uh, the ability to travel or interrogated for no, re no reason other than their faith. So, yeah, it's, it's very damaging and it does damage, um, you know, our intelligence capacities as well because I don't think people would, would want to work with this administration and I think that that's understandable. You say the roots of alternative facts can be seen in the Bush administration's false claims about weapons of mass destruction in Iraq and a bold boast by Bush counselor Karl Rove in 2004. What did Rove say? Uh, I think I have the full quote in the article, but basically he said, you know, we create our own reality and, you know, you are just actors who are going to, to study us in the future. So he said this, um, you know, initially anonymously as it was reported by the New York Times, but it was later revealed to be, um, you know, a quote from him. And I do think that that set the stage, uh, you know, both for the Iraq War, um, which of course is based on a lie, you know, based on a claim of weapons of mass destruction that turned out not to be true. But also just for this um, really bold form of, uh, of lying and of deciding that, you know, power equals reality, that you're, if, if you're in a certain position, you get to determine what facts are, you get to determine what people see, and that, you know, uh, the public, which the government is supposed to serve, are instead these sort of passive actors who can be manipulated by forces from above. And it's very interesting to me that he'd say that out loud. I mean, that's the kind of thing, you know, perhaps, uh, you know, if you are of a certain nefarious mindset, you would maybe think to yourself, but, you know, he was outright bragging, um, and I think that's very disturbing because that, when, when somebody does that, that means that they have full confidence that they're able to carry out um, the objectives that they're doing, whether they're illegal or not. And in the case of the Iraq War, um, that was certainly true. You know, we went to war despite warnings from, you know, Hans Flicks from the UN, uh, you know, from many who were uh, opposing it, you know, on, on suspicion that the information in question was inaccurate. And it's the exact same kind of rhetoric coming out of the Trump administration. Um, although I guess the difference now is, you know, far fewer people trust uh, Trump. You know, I read a poll recently that most people don't believe him um, because he's been caught in lies so many times, whereas I think there is a lot more public faith um, in, in George W. Bush and in his administration in terms of, you know, the accuracy of their claims. You also see the Trump's uh, politics of misinformation or disinformation as an echo or perhaps a premonition of real authoritarian tactics that played out in Uzbekistan with terrible results. Remind us about that former Soviet Republic's longtime leader, Islam Karimov, and how he began to consolidate power. 
Um, well, Karamov was uh, originally, you know, a communist apparatchik who was in control of what was then the Uzbek Soviet Socialist Republic um, starting in 1989. And then when the Soviet Union collapsed, he just transitioned into the presidency, uh, basically keeping all of the most repressive uh, mechanisms of the Soviet Union, you know, mass surveillance, censorship, um, a very centralized form of administration, and mixing it up, uh, you know, with nationalist rhetoric, with um, a very narrow form of Islam, which, you know, was now allowed to be practiced. Um, you know, before it was an atheist uh, country, and you know, um, and then along with that, sort of the standard things you see in a, in authoritarian states, you know, no freedom of speech, um, no independent press, no opposition, and this, uh, you know, began almost immediately when he was in power, and you know, there's kind of a um, you know, an uncertain period in the early 90s where it looked like Uzbekistan may open up, like it might depart um, from what it was doing in the Soviet era, but he quickly consolidated power um, through these tactics and remained in power until he died uh, last summer. And as time went on and he got, you know, increasingly paranoid, increasingly insular, it, it became more and more repressive to the point that there, you know, there is no independent media there. And people's social media posts um, are monitored. Uh, you know, you can be in trouble for, for any kind of minor criticism of the president. Their new president, um, Shevkat Mirziyoyev, is a little bit more open, but I only say that in comparison to Karimov. It's, it's still an authoritarian state, but there's been sort of a slight um, loosening of, of those restrictions since he came into office. As economic and political conditions deteriorated, protests grew, and Karimov escalated repression and media manipulation, also concerning a massacre, but a real one. Tell us what happened in the eastern city of Andijan and how Karimov responded. Um, that's a complicated story. I'll, I'll give a brief summary. In May 2005, um, there was a mass protest in Andijan, uh, you know, which is in eastern Uzbekistan, you know, very close to the border of Kyrgyzstan. And that protest had to do with the arrest of a group of businessmen, um, you know, who had been advocating for freer economic conditions, but were also devout Muslims, which kind of made them a, you know, a dual enemy of the state in terms of Karimov. You know, these are both um, positions that he saw threatening because he wanted his administration to control both, you know, thought and belief in terms of religious expression and control people's economic power. Um, and, you know, as you mentioned, the economic conditions of Uzbekistan, you know, were very grim and remain grim, um, and particularly are so in rural areas and out in the Fergana Valley. And so um, on May 13th, about uh, 10,000 people gathered um, to protest the jailing of these businessmen, um, you know, which had happened before. Uh, a lot of people were drawn um, to Bober Square, which is a central square in the city, to just see what was going on. Um, they thought that Karimov might appear to talk to them and address some of these concerns. And instead, uh, he sent in tanks and soldiers, and they massacred uh, about 800 people, um, including, you know, women, children, uh, civilians, um, you know, etc. And after that, um, you know, they had to come up with some sort of rationale for this. I mean, first they tried to just suppress it. You wouldn't see any information about anything having to do with Andijan on TV. But, you know, word did get out, and so they pinned it all, they pinned it all on a group that they called Acromia, um, named after, 
you know, Akram Yudolshev, who was one of the arrested businessmen. And, uh, you know, Acromio is not an actual group. Like, no one in that circle of businessmen or who associated with them would have identified them as Acromia. Um, what they had done was, you know, seeing these guys as a potential threat to their political power, had devised propaganda about them well in advance. Um, you know, one of Krima's lackeys, uh, who was a, you know, quote-unquote religious scholar, but also basically a propagandist, created an encyclopedia entry about them, presenting them as a terrorist organization akin to something like uh, Hizbut Tahrir, which is a, um, a group that wanted to form an Islamic caliphate and Central Asia. Um, and so they became this scapegoat. Um, there was a lot of propaganda about them. There was a, you know, movie, there were show trials, and, you know, it was a, a very alarming phenomenon. Um, the crackdown on human rights accelerated after that. Uh, people were, you know, labeled, uh, you know, as Acromia members for, you know, no particular reason at all. And, you know, they basically served as a kind of pretext uh, myth to justify very, very brutal actions by the state. And again, the name comes from where? Uh, from Akram Yildoshev. He, he died in prison, but he was a businessman uh, slash philosopher, kind of, you know, an interesting guy who around um, in the early 90s, you know, when Uzbekistan was having this kind of crisis of, like, who are we as a country if we're not in the Soviet Union anymore? Like, how do we feel about being Muslims? How do we feel about being Uzbeks? He wrote this, like, very freewheeling tract called, um, you know, The, the Path of the Soul, or Imonga Yol um, in Uzbek. And, you know, it had nothing about um, Uzbekistan in it. Like, the word Uzbekistan didn't appear. It had nothing about the government. It had nothing about his book, It had to do with, you know, it was kind of like a spiritual guide. It was like something that if it was in the U.S. would be put in, like, the self-help section of a bookstore, like, fairly innocuous. It did talk about Islam, but not in any kind of, um, you know, political way. But he was single. It, it was popular um, because of this. You know, there was a growing interest in, you know, spiritual issues. Um, there still is at that time. And, uh, you know, I think they saw him as, as very threatening. You know, the, the government sees anybody who manages to, um, you know, attract the attention of their countrymen but is not directly linked to the state as a threat to the state. Um, and so he became an easy target, and they decided to, you know, name the group after him, after his first name. It was hard to debunk the Acromia scapegoat, but you managed to do it in a peer-reviewed 2016 paper. Tell us what you found, how you found it, and how your findings helped Uzbeks falsely accused. First, it was, it was a 2006 paper. Um, I wrote it shortly after the incident had happened. I was in grad school at the time. I was supposed to go to Uzbekistan, um, you know, but then this happened and I wasn't able to. Uh, but I became very interested in the massacre and I began, you know, wondering what exactly had happened. You know, who was this group? Who were these people? And it was a combination of, um, you know, happening to randomly find the encyclopedia entry in question written by that propagandist um, through a book I had taken out interlibrary loan, and also finding um, Akram Yadolsha's actual book, Imonga Yol, which, uh, you know, was not available in English at the time, but I translated it from uh, Uzbek, and then also looking at what, you know, Uzbek scholars and also sometimes Western scholars had written about Akromia and Andijan, and, you know, piecing this together and finding out that they had created this group um, in advance, I think basically is, is a way to use it in case 
something like this uh, occurred. And, you know, they were not actually a terrorist group. And contrary to what, um, you know, both Uzbek and Western scholars had written, they hadn't, you know, this, this text of his did not have anything to do with, uh, you know, politics or overthrowing the state or building a caliphate or anything he was accused of. Uh, the group itself, you know, and this is backed up by Human Rights Watch and Amnesty and other organizations that investigated it, had not engaged in uh, any activities like this. So, you know, I wrote a long paper, um, you know, debunking, debunking the Acromia myth that was published in Demokratizatia in 2006. And at this time, um, you know, one thing I, I should have mentioned is that the Andachan massacre caused a huge refugee crisis. Um, a lot of people that were there fled Uzbekistan into Kyrgyzstan, um, you know, because it was very close to Kyrgyzstan. And so they ended up in southern Kyrgyzstan, which is a mostly uh, Uzbek, you know, ethnically Uzbek area. And then from there, it tended to either, you know, stay in Kyrgyzstan or to get um, asylum abroad. And one issue that would come up when people were trying to get um, asylum was, you know, are you a terrorist? Are you affiliated with this alleged terrorist act? And so, you know, the United Nations, um, you know, and also just courts around the world used my paper um, to show that this was not an actual designation you could make because the group itself uh, didn't exist. So people that were falsely called, you know, acromists, uh, you know, by the Uzbek government had their names cleared in, in part because, you know, I had proven that this group did not exist as an actual um, terrorist group and, you know, and didn't have those uh, intentions. So, you know, I'm glad that that was able to happen. A decade later, you write, those Uzbek refugees are now potential Trump targets. Is that even if they want asylum and even citizenship? Well, they're worried because uh, they're Muslims. I mean, for, for folks I know in the United States, um, you know, Uzbeks who are here, um, you know, there's different degrees of, you know, religiosity. Like plenty of Uzbeks I know, you know, drink alcohol and, and don't, you know, go to the mosque regularly and stuff, but still, you know, identify strongly culturally as a Muslim, um, you know, and, and are from Uzbekistan. And so they're worried uh, that they're going to be targeted for their religion. Um, the list of countries from which Trump bans Muslims is pretty arbitrary. Um, it doesn't really correlate to any kind of national security policy, and they're worried that Uzbekistan might be added, especially since, you know, there recently was, uh, you know, a terrorist attack done by someone, um, you know, from Uzbekistan, um, you know, although it was, uh, you know, in, in Kyrgyzstan, I mean, sorry, in Russia, um, you know, and then there's another one by an ethnic Uzbek from Kyrgyzstan, too. And so, you know, I, I definitely think there's reason for that. I think there's reason for all Muslims in America to be worried. Um, you know, constitutionally they shouldn't be because they should have their rights protected. But this is a very Islamophobic administration and they're not shy about that. Um, they don't seem to consider Muslims to be true Americans or true citizens. And, you know, I think that, uh, you know, we have an obligation to fight that. Everybody should be, you know, fighting that kind of hateful rhetoric. And you see Trump tactics as the latest step in a transformation of Western governments generally, uh, and in the U.S. especially. Say more. Generally, there's a, 
a right-wing movement, um, an authoritarian movement that we're seeing in a lot of countries that, you know, exploits uh, economic pain. It tends to guise it as populism. It exploits nostalgia for the past, which for the countries in question usually means a more ethnically homogenous society. And so, you know, when Trump is talking about make America great again, um, it's unclear when he's referring to. I mean, honestly, it reminds me more of, like, the 1830s and probably any other time, um, you know, but he definitely is looking towards a white America, and you see the same nativist strains in, you know, France with Le Pen, um, you know, in Poland and Hungary. Uh, there's also, you know, in countries that are not white or European, like Turkey or the Philippines, um, you know, a, moving, a move toward dictatorship. Um, you know, Turkey just had its referendum basically making it a dictatorship, which is, you know, incredibly sad. Um, it's a huge change from the last decade. And, you know, worldwide, uh, we're seeing this happen, um, often on very narrow margins. You know, when they have a vote, it's kind of 50-50. So I wouldn't say that people around the world are uniformly embracing these kind of governments, but that, you know, governments like this are able to get into power. Um, and once they're into power, it's very dangerous because they can change the laws, uh, you know, they can persecute people who oppose them. And, you know, I think uh, our checks and balances are semi-holding. I think we've had some progress, um, you know, with the judiciary being able to strike down some executive orders that are unconstitutional. But, you know, things are happening quickly, and they, they are really trying to change, you know, the fundamental nature of our democracy for the worse. And I think people think, well, this is impossible, you know, this can't happen in the U.S., but you can just look at how quickly, you know, Hungary or Poland or Turkey changed, and, you know, it can. Uh, it can happen anywhere. Given the major differences between government and culture in the U.S. versus Uzbekistan, how much of a predictor uh, is political fabrication in the latter uh, for the future of the former, that is, in Uzbekistan as a, as a preview of what might happen here, really? Uh, what's the likeliest impact on American life and lives? I mean, in terms of history and in terms of government structure, you know, they're very different. You know, Uzbekistan has never been free. Uh, you know, it wasn't free under the Soviet Union. It wasn't free when it was ruled by Hans. Um, you know, it had people who are interested in, you know, I wouldn't even just say democracy. They're interested in, you know, human rights, in justice, in dignity, in, you know, freedom. Like, that, that's more the kind of vocabulary they use to describe what they want. Uh, instead of kind of a, a Western um, paradigm. And, you know, we have a different tradition. You know, we have a longstanding constitution, a history of, you know, democratic rule and checks and balances and, you know, various legislative procedures that make it more difficult to enact um, an autocracy here. I think what we have in common, um, you know, are things like kleptocrats. Um, you know, they, they might have oligarchs. We have plutocrats. You know, we have some financial interests, some which are literal. Um, you know, we're now have an administration that's tied up with, you know, Russian, you know, oligarchs and mobsters, much the same way Uzbekistan is. Um, in terms of information, I think the whole world is dealing, you know, with the effects of digital media and the Internet and how easy it is uh, to manipulate the public, to put out propaganda, to kind of dilute the idea of truth. Um, you know, we've seen Russia, of course, with its propaganda campaigns that it tries to, you know, use to alter elections all around the world and, and you know, of course, use to, to alter ours. Um, and that's that kind of propaganda is the kind of thing you see in Uzbekistan, you know, all the time. Um, and it really, you know, makes people feel cynical. It makes people feel panicked about, you know, is this true? Is this false? 
and uh, you know one of the the weirdest aspects of it is I think it, it makes people paranoid, and the result of that kind of ubiquitous paranoia tends to be credulity. Uh, people accept conspiracy theories much faster. Um, but, you know, I noticed this about Uzbekistan about a decade ago, how easily people buy into conspiracy theories because you just know you can't trust what the government says. You know you can't trust the information you get. You kind of have to rely on gossip, and people know that. But that's kind of happened in our society, too. Um, the difference is, though, that, you know, in the U.S., we do have freedom of speech as a legal right, um, which they don't have in Uzbekistan. And we can sit and we can discuss it and we can criticize our government and we can try to figure out um, what's going on. We can suggest alternatives and, you know, we can protest. And, you know, those are all rights that we should not take for granted. Um, you know, it's very good that we have them now. I think it's a strong, um, you know, barricade against, you know, fully, you know, authoritarian rule, which we're, we're not in. Obviously, I wouldn't be having this conversation with you. Um, but, you know, we, they're the kind of rights that I think people like Jeff Sessions and Trump and Bannon um, would like to take away. So we need to make sure that we protect those as much as we can. Well, in that line, what do you think is the best thing that free people here and uh, around the world and other countries can do to prevent manipulation of media and their own minds? That's a tough question. I mean, I think to some degree, I mean, it depends who you are. If, if you're a journalist, um, I think we need to be very careful about what we're writing. Like, one thing that Trump uh, exploited very well is the economic bankruptcy of the journalism economy, where people are just churning stuff out, um, you know, to get clicks, to get cash, to get attention. Cable news uh, relied on Trump as a cash cow, letting him, you know, just have his rallies era for hours and not correcting his facts. And that resulted in a real shift in political culture in which, you know, extremism became mainstreamed. And I think that now that we've had a wave of hate crimes, now that we have, you know, a, a government with authoritarian intent, I think people realize that, you know, this is not something you can play around with, that there's real repercussions, and so journalists are being a bit more responsible, but I, you know, I still do see um, you know, a lot of careless reporting. For individuals trying to sort this out, I think it's even tougher, um, you know, because as journalists or as scholars, like, we have the time to go through something the administration says and, you know, parse through it and try to find the facts and look for primary sources and, you know, try to figure out what's true. Most people have jobs, you know, and lives, and they, they just are, you know, maybe getting their news from social media or watching a little bit of cable news in the evening, and they don't have the time um, to sort all this out. And so it can be very hard to figure out, uh, you know, what's true and what's not when your government is actively lying to you. Um, you know, so what I would encourage is, you know, critical thinking and that if you hear something that sounds a little weird or a little suspicious, you know, which is hard at this point because almost everything the Trump administration says sounds weird. Um, but, you know, to try to look for alternate sources, to think about journalists or media outlets you know that have proven themselves to be reliable over the long run, you know, that if a site or source of information is unfamiliar, look into it, um, you know, see what else they publish and whether those stories sound plausible and just, you know, compare and think about it. Um, but that's like a, that's a tall order, you know, that it's hard to ask people to do that when, when they have so much on their minds. And so, you know, that's one of the reasons I'm very angry with the government um, for lying so flagrantly because it's just a cruel thing to do, you know, to a population that they're supposed to serve. Sarah Kenzior, thank you. Oh, thank you. Sarah Kenzior is a St. Louis-based writer and scholar on Central Asia. 
Her article in the new spring issue of World Policy Journal is headlined From Andijan to Bowling Green, Fabricated Terrorism in Uzbekistan and the United States. Since we spoke, the politics of terrorism have played a key role in the French presidential election. After the fatal shooting of a policeman on the Champs-Élysées, for which the Islamic State took credit, National Front Leader Marine Le Pen finished an extremely close second to the moderate independent candidate, former banker and finance minister Emmanuel Macron, in the first-round vote. And terror was a key issue in the angry two-hour TV debate between Le Pen and Macron days before final-round voting. She called him complacent toward Islamist fundamentalism. He called her the high priestess of fear. In a snap poll afterwards, 63% said Macron was more convincing on that and key economic issues, and he was reported to hold a 20-point lead in down-to-the-wire presidential preference polls. Also featured in the new WPJ Spring Issue, cover line Fascism Rising, you'll find numerous views on how corruption of language and distortion of history contribute to dictatorship and how the process can best be fought. Also reports on the infrastructure of counterinsurgency, on the retro-macho politics that doomed Dilma Rousseff in Brazil, and on Ukraine, buffer or flashpoint between Russia and the West. And listen next week when our podcast will consider final results of the French election, plus the pro- and anti-Le Pen legacy. World Policy On Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor Christopher Shea, online news editor Laurel Jerombeck, podcast producer Anna Grace Carter. I'm David Alpern.